Good morning again. Welcome to worship, both members here in person and those watching us uh, live stream. My name is Jeff Wyma, and I've been here before, but permit me to introduce myself. I'm a professor of New Testament at Calvin Theological Seminary, been there for 28 years, um, and married, have four children, all who are married, eight grandchildren. Um, I do uh, seminars also for pastors for preaching. I lead biblical tours and uh, also preach myself on Sunday morning. And so that's where I am this morning. I'm glad to be here again in Ivanrest. Of course, I'll be yesterday's man pretty soon, right? As soon as uh, your new pastor comes, you'll forget about me. And then maybe somewhere down the road, we'll see each other again. But that's the way things go. But I'm here this week and next week. And I'm doing something dangerous both weeks, even though I'm a New Testament professor. I'm choosing to preach both this week and next week on two Old Testament prophets, probably that are not so well known to us. So this morning we're looking at the prophet Joel, and the title of the message is The Day of the Lord Prophet. Why? Because Joel uses a phrase that many other prophets use, but he uses it more than them, and that's that phrase, Day of the Lord. And you may know it because New Testament writers borrow that phrase also to refer to this event that we'll be talking about uh, this morning. So if you're here, if you would turn in your pew Bible to page, I believe, 741, and those who are home will maybe take about an hour or so to find that prophecy, but... Uh, Actually, there are what are called minor prophets, not because they're less important, but they're just a little shorter. And there are 12 of them, and Hosea is the first one, and the second one is Joel. And Joel is three chapters long, and it really is one complete sermon. And so we're going to read part of Joel right now, and then in the message, I'll refer to other parts of Joel as well as the parts we're reading now. And I say all that because... I'd like to encourage you, if possible, to have your Bibles open so that at those times you can not only hear but also see what is found on the pages of God's Word. So with all of that, we're hopefully ready now to hear from the prophecy of Joel. We're first looking at chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and then we're going to jump to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Joel 1, verse 2. And one. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locust have eaten. And what the great locust have left, the young locust have eaten. And what the young locust have left, the other locust have eaten. Chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times or ever will be in ages to come. 
Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops. Like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? In 1984, that means 36 years ago, my wife and I, after one year of marriage, and after one year of being a student at Calvin Theological Seminary, found ourselves serving as the interim pastor in Nearlandia Christian Reformed Church, Alberta. If you don't know where Nearlandia, Alberta is, don't feel bad. I'm from Canada, and I didn't know either. We had to look it up on a map to see where we were going. But after we finally arrived in northern Alberta at a rather large rural church, I began ministry. And because it was my first time in ministry, I had no sermons, of course, from the past to rely on. And it's a bit of my character. I'm a bit of a workaholic. I dove into my calling with well, with vengeance, I had to write not one but two sermons every week, and it was a rather large congregation, which meant there were lots of people to visit. And with all of that activity, I ended up doing something that I was not aware of, something not healthy at all, and that was ignoring my marriage and my wife, Bernice. And so in order to kind of wake me up and to get my attention, she did something quite dramatic. Now, before I tell you what she did, I need to share with you that Nearlandia, Alberta is a rural congregation, and in order to welcome the new pastor and his wife, people brought us gifts, gifts from the land, and it so happened that there were a lot of chicken farmers in this congregation, and so they brought us eggs. And when I say eggs, please don't think of these nice little two dozen eggs, you know, uh, that you get at Meyer. I want you to think of flats of eggs. And pretty quickly, they were numbering one, two, three, four flats of eggs as a gracious gift from the parishioners of Nearlandia Christian Reformed Church. 
Well, on one particular day, I'm not sure which one it was, but I was in the dining room in the parsonage, and it was behind my computer, and on the other side of the kind of picture window, the glass picture window, outside stood my wife, Bernice. And in my hand, in her hand, sorry, she was holding something. She was holding, take a guess, an egg. And you need to know, my wife, that she's rather quiet and rather meek, but this dear wife of mine had a very stone-cold expression on her face, and she looked right at me through the glass, and she reached back and threw the egg, whack, splat against the picture window, and it dribbled down as gravity took its force. In the days of the prophet Joel, God's people were taking their covenant relationship with God for granted. God was their God, and they were his people, and they were going through the motions of worship, but they were just the motions. There was no genuine acknowledgement of God and God alone. And so God did something kind of dramatic to wake them up and to get their attention. What did God do? He sent a plague He didn't send any old plague. He sent a locust plague. And he didn't send any old locust plague. He sent a locust plague like had never, ever been witnessed before. It's described actually in rather understated ways in the opening verse, chapter 1, verse 4. It goes like this. We read simply, what the locust swarm has left, the great locust have eaten. And what the great locust have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wave after wave after wave of locusts devouring absolutely everything in the land. How bad was it? Well, to give you some feeling for how catastrophic it was, listen to these excuse me, images that we read in chapter 1. In verse 5, we read about people who drink wine, which was a common drink in the land. They're weeping because, well, there's nothing left for them to drink. In 1 verse 8, we read that the people of Israel, like a bridegroom on her wedding night, the night before she would get married, And instead of being full of excitement and anticipation, she's wearing ash cloth, itchly clothes, and she's she's weeping. Why? Because her beloved has just died. That's what Israel was feeling like. 1 verse 9, the priests are mourning because there's no grain, there's no food, there's no gifts for the people to offer to God. 111, the farmers and the vine growers are wailing and grieving because they've worked and worked and worked and now all their efforts are wasted. 1 verse 18, we read about the domestic animals. We read about cows and sheep. They're wandering around mooing and bawling. They don't know what to do because they're hungry and there's no clear solution. And 1 verse 20, we read even about the wild animals that are walking around panting. <laughs> Because not only is there nothing to eat, but fires have come and consumed all the stubble and the water resources of the land. And so again, we ask, how bad was it? 
It was catastrophic. Why, it would have made the wildfires in California and the West that we've endured in the past couple of years look like a minor inconvenience. Now, chapter 1 describes the locust plague, which was obviously bad. But chapter 2 describes the locust plague in a way that makes it badder. Why? Because chapter 2 makes it clear that God sent this locust plague. This hasn't happened by accident or chance. But no, actually, the locust is like an army, the very army of God. And once again, here are the powerful images in chapter 2 that emerge. In verse 4 of that chapter, we read that the locusts are like an army of horses galloping along at top speed. In verse 5, we read they're like an army of chariots. Chariots are like high-end, high-tech military hardware, but only effective on flat ground, which is very short supply in Israel. But that didn't stop this army. They leap over the mountaintops, we read, without a moment's hesitation. 2.7 says they're like an army where each soldier marks in a straight line. They don't deviate to the left or the right. Nothing slows them down. And in 2.9, we read that they attack not only on the ground, but man, they're running along the walls. They're running into the windows. They're simply everywhere. Some of us this morning may remember those rather famous movies in the past of Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was just redone recently called The Terminator, where this machine, this cyborg, just kind of relentlessly pursued his target. Absolutely nothing could slow this machine down. And that's a little bit of the image we get when we read the prophecy of Joel. And if that weren't scary enough, we read in verse 11, who's leading the charge? The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The locust plague is bad. The locust plague sent by God is badder, but baddest of all is the prophet Joel reveals that this catastrophe is a foreshadowing. It's an anticipation of the day of the Lord. Now, I have a sneaky suspicion that doesn't mean too much to you. Because the day of the Lord may be an expression you've heard of before, but it doesn't resonate with you. But you need, dear friends, to know that it did with the Israelites of old. They were very excited about the day of the Lord. Because prophets, besides Joel, had told them that one day the Lord would act, right? Right now they might be under oppression. Right now their enemies may torment them, but one day, the day of the Lord, God's going to act. He probably will send a Messiah, but in some way God's going to dramatically act and he's going to thump our enemies and we're going to be vindicated. And so we Israelites pray for, we eagerly anticipate the glorious day of the Lord. 
But then God comes through Joel and says something like, I wouldn't be excited if I were you about the day of the Lord because not only will the enemy nations be punished on that day, but even those among my people who what? Who take my covenant relationship with them for granted. Now, at this point, you might not be very excited about my being here. You're saying, oh, man, we got to listen to this gloom and doom preacher, not only today, but next week, too? You say to yourself, I came to church not to hear more bad news. There's enough bad news out there already with COVID running around and all kinds of political unrest and snowy weather. I need to hear you say some good news. And I have the privilege this morning to tell you some good news, some gospel news. We find that gospel news in the prophecy of Joel, where I finished reading in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. They were paraphrased in our opening call to worship. Hear these words, and I want you to listen for the good news of the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We read this. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. You heard it, didn't you? You heard that good news, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that the Israelites first heard already on Mount Sinai. The good news that God shared with Moses, and Moses passed it on to the people of Israel. That's the good news that the psalmists repeat a number of times. It became kind of like the, the anthem or the favorite hymn of the Israelites. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in good news. And people hear that and they say, Amen. And now in Joel 2, in the midst of all this gloom and doom, an ominous note of judgment springs forth the good news that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And God's people say, or ought to say, amen. Now we know that truth, that that gospel truth even better than Joel did himself. And how is that possible? Well, because we've not only heard that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, why we have witnessed it. We have seen it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've just come through the Christmas season, and Jesus is the incarnation of the gospel. He demonstrated that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that gospel truth is testified also in his life and in his ministry. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, we do have to admit that the God 
will not be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger to everyone. He is willing to be that way, and he offers up that good news to all, but notice that that gospel message in 2.13 is preceded in 2.12 by a what? A call to repentance. In other words, if you want to experience this good and gracious God, you need to repent of your sin. Now, don't make the fatal mistake of thinking that repentance is easy, because I suggest to you that it's not. In fact, it's probably the hardest words that we will ever have to say, namely, I was wrong, or my bad, I made a mistake. In fact, quite the opposite. Instead of acknowledging our sin before God, we, we kind of defend ourselves. We look at ourselves, and we either say consciously or subconsciously, I'm not so bad. In fact, compared to most people around, I'm pretty good. And, you know, God can't expect too much from me anyway. I mean, here we read in Joel where God challenges his people to what? To rend not their clothes, but their heart. You see, back then, if someone wanted to really outwardly show that they were grieving or upset, or one powerful way to show before God, I guess, that you were truly sorry for what you have done, you take your clothes, and you don't have many of them, right? You've only got maybe one set of clothes that you wear regularly. And you take those valuable clothes, and you start ripping them up, and people look at you and go, whoa, did you see? Wow. But as dramatic as that act may be, it doesn't always reflect a genuine what? Repentance of the heart. And that's the challenge of the gospel. For us, with the Holy Spirit's help, to what? To take words of repentance to God. To confess our sin, our failure, our brokenness. But as hard as that is... The outcome is wonderful. The outcome is amazing because the outcome is the good news of the gospel. Then you will experience a God who is what? Who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. That's the good news of the gospel that I bring you today. Now, at this point, having brought you the good news, I perhaps could and should stop. But at the risk of seeming like a long-winded preacher, there's actually more good news that I feel compelled to share with you. And that good news is found in Joel also. And the good news is this. As you and I wait for the day of the Lord, from the New Testament point of view, the day of Jesus' return, when there will be a final account, well, there will be a final judgment, we wait for that day, and we're prepared for that day, not in our own strength, or more accurately, our own weaknesses, but rather through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Two more verses from chapter 2 for those of us who have our Bibles available. 
and afterward, and notice at least in our pew Bible, it says the day of the Lord, because we're talking about the future, what God will do. And afterward, on the day of the Lord, what will God do? I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And what Joel prophesied as a future event, we who live after Christmas and, and Good Friday and Easter and Ascension Day, we who live after Pentecost know as a past event, as a real event. You can read about it, of course, in Acts chapter 2 where a bunch of amazing things happened, the, the crowd who witnessed those things was very dismissive. In fact, some tried to say this was just people who had, people who had, were drunk. I mean, you know, they're doing stupid and silly things. And then Peter makes it very clear. Peter stands up, the apostle Peter, and says, these people are not drunk. No, this is Acts 2. Peter says, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel, yeah, I mean, the very thing we're reading about this morning. Now, don't for a moment think that the Holy Spirit wasn't around until Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was available and operating during the Old Covenant. He was there at creation, and in the Old Testament, read about the Holy Spirit coming upon what? Coming upon only particular people, a limited number of people, and even for a limited amount of time. But what's new about the new covenant, what's better about the new covenant is the Holy Spirit comes upon all of God's people, sons and daughters, young and old alike, and not in a limited way, but in a full measure, in an unlimited way. And that's the further good news that I bring you this morning. We who live in challenging times. Don't you agree with me? We live in challenging times. I mean, we always have. Whenever you live in a fallen world, the impact of sin makes its presence in all too painful and powerful ways. And the good news of the gospel is not only is God a good and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, but he's... He's a present God. He has poured out His Spirit, and we, His children, now live by and can be prepared for the day of the Lord by the empowering presence of God's Spirit. I know my time is running out. Don't worry. The end is in sight. But just a word about chapter 3 and a closing challenge. Again, those of you with Bibles available, look at chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. Chapter 3, 14, 15, and 16. And here we talk about the day of the Lord, this future day of judgment. We read, multiple, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. 
Chapter 3 in these words raise a very important closing question, and that is, what will the day of the Lord be for you? Will this future day be a day of judgment? Will it be a day in which the Lord roars from Zion like an animal devouring its prey? Or will it instead be, as our text also holds out, a day of refuge? I want you to ask the question, Am I taking my relationship with God for granted? I might mean here this morning, but I'm just kind of going through the motions. My worship of God is not as the one and only true God and His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm wondering whether God has maybe done something in your life lately to wake you up. And this something is not something that you like. It could well be painful. It could be very painful. You're not at all happy about this thing that is happening, but yet it is an opportunity for you to think about the larger questions of life and death. When we were in Nearlandia, Alberta, so many years ago, and my wife threw that egg at me, I knew I had no time to waste. I had to turn my computer off. I had to drop everything and respond to this dramatic act that she had done. And I suggest to you that there's no time for you to waste either. You can't wait for the future because the decision that will be made in the future is not the one that you will make, but the one that God will make. We read about the valley of Jehoshaphat in Joel. That means Jehovah decides, not you on the day of the Lord, but God decides. But you should not face that day with a sense of fear or desperation. We read at the end of chapter, no, at the, end, at, at the end of the reading I gave earlier in chapter 2, verse 11, the day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. And then the question is this, who can endure it? Who can endure the coming day of the Lord? And the gospel answer is, you can. You can endure the coming day of the Lord. Why? Because you have rended your, not your clothes, but your heart. Because you know God as a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Because you know what Joel says in 2 verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great God, we come to you this morning thankful for the good news of the gospel spoken through your servant Joel and manifested in the person and work of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. We thank you, O God, for the good news of the gospel that 
that everyone who calls on your name will be saved. And so we now pray that your Holy Spirit, poured out on Pentecost, will work in each one of our hearts, moving us to acknowledge our sin, to repent of our evil, and to commit ourselves solely to you. And give us also a sense of confidence, O God, as we endure these present times, perhaps difficult ones for many of us. And as we anticipate the glorious day of the Lord, we pray that your Spirit would empower us for holy living so that we may say not only with our lips but also with our lives that we are your people and that you are our God. Reassure us of these truths and prepare us for that day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the message, you're invited now to stand and receive God's blessing. And after that, some may choose to leave, but many may choose to say as we sing in response to the good news of the gospel. But now we hear these words of blessing and assurance from our triune God. May the grace, the truly amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. And all God's people said,